At the beginning of this year, we are looking at the beginning of Jesus' ministry according to the Gospel of Matthew. And today, it brings us to uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 20, where last week um, we began chapter 5, um, looked at chapter 5, where we call what we call the Beatitudes. And this is the beginning of a sermon that Jesus was giving. And after Jesus transitions from the Beatitudes, he moves into this part of Scripture, or what, this part of the sermon, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. I invite you now to listen to God's Word. It can, again, it comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. You may find it on page 4 in your New Testament section of the Pew Bibles. I invite you now to listen to God's Word. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but is trampled, is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. People do not light a lamp and put it under a bushel basket. Rather, they put it on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be, the, will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them, and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Friends, is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. 100 years ago, Harry Emerson Fosdick preached a sermon in New York City titled, Shall the fundamentalist win? This 1922 sermon is marked by some as one of the most important sermons preached in the United States history. In the sermon, um, Fosley addressed a Christian movement in the congregation and seminaries that threatened to cast out congregants and preachers out of the churches that they did not express a narrow understanding of the virgin birth of Jesus, the inerrancy of Scripture, and in, in the return of Christ. Fosdick observed that in every church, there exist many different opinions of these and other matters. Expressing general humility, Fosdick went on to say, I am not certain who is wrong and who is right in these debates. But there is one thing I am sure of. Courtesy, kindness, tolerance, humility, fairness, or right. Opinions may be mistaken. Love never is. Not everyone, 100 years ago or today, would agree on the importance of this sermon. Fosdick was removed from his leadership at the First Presbyterian Church of New York City. Many cried heresy. And others contribute this sermon to giving the fundamental right the exact push to unite and move forward that this movement had been longing for. All creating a division among the Christian within the United States that exists today. Using a sermon to create division among Christians 
is not a new thing. For hundreds of years, movement after movement, have tried to use Jesus' Sermon on the Mount to create the vision. Especially the portion we read this morning. Especially that last verse. For I tell you, Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. What do you suppose that Jesus could have meant by those words? Some argue that Jesus is pitting the Old Testament righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes against the New Testament and Jesus. The argument is that Jesus cancels out the laws of the Old Testament. There are no longer rules to be obeyed, they say. Instead, God lives within us. Because God lives within us, we are then guided by our own conscious opinions and feelings. Like an ubiquitous uh, 60s mantra. If it feels good, do it. This argument does not hold up very well when you notice what Jesus says in verse 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've come not to abolish, but to fulfill. Is Jesus then calling us to double down on the laws, having strict, conservative, literal readings? Some would argue yes. But here again, Jesus was accused himself of not obeying the laws, healing on the Sabbath, touching the unclean, bending down, drawing in the sand, forbidding a woman from being stoned. All against the laws. And let us not forget, Jesus got angry with the Pharisees and the scribes as well when the religious leaders were using the laws for their personal gains. It was Jesus who turned over the tables. In fact, when Jesus got angry and critical and judgmental in the Gospels, almost always it was in response to those religious leaders using the law for their gain or their self-righteous behavior. But overall, those scribes, those Pharisees, with an exception of some, were most likely good, responsible, civic-minded, kind people, and the ones who followed the laws, kept the rituals, observed the festivals. They were, if you would, the champions of the laws. They were the most righteous. So I wonder if those listening to Jesus on that day when he said, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I wonder if they heard that, if they themselves felt a little defeated, as if they had no chance of achieving what Jesus was calling for. I wonder if many of us do not feel the same way. It seems like society and the church constantly telling us that we have to do it right. Eat the right foods, exercise, meditate, sleep the right hours, and pray and study scripture the right way, work the right hours, volunteer the right hours, save the right amount of money, watch the right news channel, be on the right side of history, go to the right church, and by the way, make sure you say and speak the right words. 
to not offend anyone. Not to mention your children. Raise them right. And make sure they have the right friends or in the right activities or have taken the right classes. Make the right grades. Get into the right college. Get the right job. Make the right spouse. So they too can have a child and raise them right. And start the stressful cycle of being right all over again. There's so much pressure to do it right. So we'll be forgiven if we hear Jesus' words and we feel, well, a little defeated. But I actually think this is exactly what Jesus wants. Richard Rohr has said, we come to God not by doing it right. We come to God by doing it wrong. A few summers ago, eight friends gathered together for a backyard dinner table in the Washington, D.C., to celebrate family and friendship. The the table was set with incredible foods and French wine. It was one of those nights that just sort of lingered on in a great way. It was getting late when Michael, one of the hosts that night, looks up and he sees, as if in slow motion, a long barrel of a handgun come between he and his wife. The gun belongs to a man, medium in size, wearing designer's uh, sweats, who raises the gun first at Michael and then at his friend Christina. And then to Michael's wife, saying, give me your money. He keeps repeating over and over this phrase, give me your money, give me your money. Harsh and angry, give me your money. Fear and terror invade the backyard. But there's a problem, because like many people today, no one there had any cash on them whatsoever. No one has any money. So they start talking, grasping in some way to dissuade the man, trying trying guilt. What would your mother think? One responded, I don't have a mother. Give me your money. You don't want to do something you regret. There's teenagers here, and we're good people. We try doing things the right way. Give me your money. Michael remembers thinking this is not going to end well at all. But Christina pipes up. You know, we're celebrating, she says. Why don't you have a a glass of wine? And all of a sudden, he looked at the man's face, change. He takes a sip of the wine. Huh, this is really good wine, he says. And then he reaches for some crackers. As he reaches for some crackers, he puts the gun in his pocket. He drinks the wine, eats some cheese, and everyone just watches, frozen. And then the intruder says something that no one would expect. I think I've come to the wrong place. And quickly everyone responds, oh yeah, it happens all this time. We understand that. It happens. Those GPSs get things wrong all the time. But they're still there. And he still has the gun in his pocket. And again, the intruder says something that nobody expects. He says, can I get a hug? So Michael's wife sort of walks over there, who minutes earlier had a gun pointed right at her face, and she hugs the man. Then he looks around, and he says, can I get a a group hug? And everyone forms this awkward circle around the man into some big group hug. When the hug uh, finishes, he says, I'm sorry. And everyone eased with a little bit as he walked out that front gate with a wine glass in his hand. After the night had ended, the people were leaving. Michael found that wine glass, not thrown, and not carelessly discarded. 
carefully placed on the sidewalk. Now that's a really good story. We hear it and we think, that's a great story, but, but, it probably wouldn't happen to me in that way, but it doesn't discondone his behavior, but that guy needs some serious help, but who wants to hug strangers like that, but where's the justice in all that? From our vantage point, it's dangerous to talk about righteousness apart from accountability, justice, confession, and repentance, and all that goes with it, because it is those but statements that make us feel superior, entitled, right. Those bud statements are just our opinions that are being mistaken for God's love. And Jesus turns that definition of righteousness right upside down and tells us that we do not get to God by doing it right. In fact, we are incapable of doing it that right. We get to God by doing it wrong. Letting go. Giving up control. Allowing God to come to us. What Jesus knows is that the only thing strong enough to break open our stronghold on being right are things like pain and mistakes and failure, unjust suffering, tragedy, and just a general absurdity of life. All of these experiences lead us to the realization that we cannot fix or control or understand everything in life. And this is where our faith begins when we give up trying to be liked and leave the rest up to God. Before that, that's what the scribes and the Pharisees had. Religion. When we get to the other side of it, now we have faith. And we look back and we realize that everything up to that point was just practice. Heidi Newmark, a Lutheran pastor, tells a time when her church, located in one of the poorest sections of the Bronx, practiced and practiced and practiced for weeks. The church being made up of undocumented immigrants, uh, former cocaine, heroin addicts, and former prostitutes who were all trying to shake their addiction and seek a new life. And one Easter season, the church was trying to figure out how they, at this tiny congregation, could share the joy with the resurrection for the whole neighborhood. So they decided to recreate the Easter story, the whole story of the Holy Week in one play in front of the entire neighborhood. After weeks and and weeks of practice and practice, uh, the congregation was ready. And the day was there when someone playing Jesus even riding on a donkey and all. 
And the rest of the congregation followed behind him, waving palm branches, shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, all around the neighborhood. Neighbors came out of their homes, and they began to follow along, joining in on the celebration. The plan was to, to come back around towards the entrance of the church, and then the people in the parade would go into the church where they would act out the rest of the story. Jesus would be trialed, then crucified, taken to the tomb, and then the women would go into the tomb where they would not see Jesus. But as I came around that corner to the entrance of the church, something unexpected happened, something they did not practice. There was an impromptu political protest going on right there in the middle of the street. They were protesting police brutality. Somehow this Easter parade and this political protest got mingled up together, and everyone from both parades went inside of the church. And there they saw an innocent man tried up on trumped up charges. And the sanctuary was filled with cries. That's the way it is. That's the way it is. And then he was put to death with capital punishment. And they cried out, that's the way it is. That's the way it is. And then he was taken to the tomb. And on that third day, three women went out into that tomb. And they had practice. The script calling these three women, a former prostitute, a former addict, an undocumented worker, they practiced. These three women would go up into him and they would give a quick testimony and end it by saying, I know he is alive. I know he's alive because he is alive in me. Then the three women would sit down. The congregation would sing an Easter hymn and the service would be over. But when the third woman said, I know he is alive. I know he's alive because he is alive in me. Someone unscripted stood up. And yelled, I know he's alive. He's alive in me. And then another person stands up. I know he's alive. I know he's alive because he's alive in me. And then another person and another person and another person. People just keep standing up saying, I know he's alive because he's alive in me. Jesus begins the sermon with, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. I invite you now to look around this room and see the people that Jesus is speaking of. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Not because we earned it. Not because we deserve it. Because when we got it wrong, and when we put Jesus on that cross, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus faced the darkest and absurdity of life. And at that moment, Jesus' human mind had no reason to believe that God was the Father, that God loved him, or that his death had any transformative or redemptive meaning. At this moment, Jesus fully and totally fell into the hands of God. And that is what we call resurrection. This is the mystery of our faith. 
You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. So quit trying to be right. Scripture tells us. Christ is alive in you. And there is no mistaken in that love. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.